You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I have an arts-packed show lined up for you today, so stay with me for the next hour. After last week's trip around the state, we are staying local to Columbia this week with a visit to an outdoor theatre show featuring the King of the Lemurs, a new art show that looks back at a century of local artists, an inspirational mural painting and a bicentennial celebration concert featuring music by a leading composer of African classical art music. We have no time to waste, so grab your sunscreen and follow me. The adorable DreamWorks animated movie Madagascar came out a staggering 16 years ago. Time flies in the world of animated movies too. But the musical stage version is a relative newbie on the block, seen on stage for the first time just three years ago. Two Grammy award-winning music producers and composers created the music for the stage production and the book was written by the Emmy award-winning Kevin Delaguila, who also wrote the book for the musicals Alter Boys and Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And the stage show is part of the University of Missouri's Larry D. Clark Summer Rep Program, which is being performed this weekend and next weekend outdoors at Traditions Plaza on the MU campus. And here to give us a sneak peek behind the curtains is its director and one of my favorite guests, Dr. Joy Powell. Hello, Joy. Hello. How are you today? I am well and delighted to have you back on the show. You know, this movie was such an adorable and hilarious feel-good film. How much fun are you having with the stage version of it? Well, I mean, just as much as humanly possible. <laughs> um, it is exactly the story of the film of the original film. There are nine films in the Madagascar franchise. Oh my goodness! Yes, it's it is it's beloved, right? As you explained, and so we are having a wonderful time. Um, yes, the song "Move It, Move It" is in the show. <laughs> I keep getting that question. <laughs> But as you said, the, the rest of the uh, score is original, and it is really fun. It is uh, a story about friendship. It's a story about loyalty. It's a story about friends or the family we get to choose and how important it is to stick together. And I just feel like that's a great message anytime, but definitely as we are able to come back together, able to create live theater we are just having a blast. Um, we have a cast of 10 actors and, you know, a, a whole village of crew and designers and shop staff and costumes and scenery. And, you know, of course, our whole box office in front of house staff. I mean, it's just exciting to have the entire team back together. 
Well, the plot, I believe, is pretty much the same as the original movie plot, movie number one, though more condensed so that small bottoms don't get too squirmy on the seats. <laughs> but for those who haven't seen it, or like me, just can't remember very much apart from the lemurs, <laughs> give, us a su- <laughs> give us a summary of the story. Sure. So we have um, Alex the lion and Marty the zebra. Gloria the Hippo and Melman the Giraffe, and they are the stars of the daily show at the Central Park Zoo. And so we open um, our scene actually in New York City. And um, after the opening called It's Showtime, which is very, very fun, we find out that it is Marty the Zebra's 10th birthday. And he's starting to feel a little restless. He's starting to feel like there's got to be more than what he knows. And so he escapes the zoo. And so then his three best friends escape the zoo as well. Um, They end up on a ship headed to Madagascar, which they think is another zoo (laughs) in San Diego. (laughs) And there they encounter the lemurs and King Julian, who, of course, is a hilarious character. And they encounter the Fusa, who are the villains. And they work to find their way back home. And, of course, the penguins are, you know, at the helm of that journey, um, whether they're good at it or not. <laughs> so it's um, it's a really funny script. I mean, the film is funny, and that comedy definitely translates to the stage musical. So talk to me about the costumes. This is kind of a big production to pull off in terms of costumes. And do you also have puppets, or are all the animals performed? Well, what a wonderful question. You're so good. <laughs> All of the animals are performed. There are two scripts. One is the Madagascar, a musical adventure junior, Uh and then Madagascar, a musical adventure theater for young audiences. And we're doing the theater for young audiences version. And so that version has a cast of 10 and there are several actors that play multiple parts. So you may see an actor come out as a penguin. You may see them as a lemur, as a fusa, as a as a police officer, as a zookeeper, as, you know, all of these things, Um, which is really great, you know, from an educate theater education standpoint, you know, it's really giving our actors training on how to play those multiple parts, Um, which always, of course, the teacher in me is very excited about that part. Um, But we decided as a production team, a designer, um, you know, our costumes are designed by our wonderful professor, Mark Vital, who's our costume designer in the theater department. He and I chatted quite a bit and that we wanted to see the human actor. We wanted to see that. And then this character of an animal, we didn't want it to feel like they were animals. We didn't want it, you know, like we only saw the animal. We didn't want it to feel like it was a mascot, you know, at a theme park. We really wanted it to have this uh, feel of humanity because, of course, it's humans that are playing it. And there are really important themes in the story that apply to humans as well. So we wanted that humanity and that person to come through. And so you'll definitely understand what animal they are. But the human is is really at the front and center. So they aren't having to be outside in Missouri summer heat in big furry costumes. Exactly. So there's also a practical side. (laughs) Um, They're all wearing shorts. All the costumes are shorts, short sleeves. Like the lemur costumes have like a fur trim, but it's not made out of fur. So you get that suggestion of that animal and how they are in, in real life. But it definitely is protecting the actor's body heat and sanity. I mean, there's iced water on every corner of backstage and at our tech booth with all of our staff there. The heat has been a challenge, 
but um, we've just been really careful. A lot of popsicles have been consumed in the process <laughs> um, just to keep folks cooled down. And um, so we're we're keeping our fingers crossed for, for mild weather, not just for our uh, company, but also for our audiences as well. So besides the challenge of the heat, what have been some of the other issues you've faced moving your summer season outside? Well, it's it's been great. It's really exciting to do something different. You know, I, I like that. You know, moving equipment, every performance, every rehearsal, that's a challenge. And, and But it's good. You know, it's logistics. It creates teamwork. It helps us work together. The entire cast and crew work together to, to load up the truck every um, after every performance. So we've got that down basically to a science at this point. <laughs> I would say another thing is that we really felt like everyone needed a really good break. You know, it's been a challenging year and a half. And so we actually condensed our season and made it shorter so that we're done. Um, we close on July 3rd, which normally we would close on July 26th. Around that third week of July is how long summer rep goes. But we, again, we wanted to give folks a break. And so, you know, how do you do the same level of work in a small amount of time, which also is another important part of actor training and technician training, because that's how summer stock goes usually. And so what I'm really grateful for is that everyone has risen to that challenge. Everyone has come together, has worked together. And I am just so excited about Madagascar, but also about our benefit concert that is June 30th and July 2nd, Blame It on the Summer Night, which is the same 10 group of actors in Madagascar will be in that concert. And we will be raising money for our brand new scholarship in the name of our beloved Dr. Marsha Berry, who passed away in 2019, where we're starting a scholarship in her name. And so the concert will then be the beginning of funding that scholarship. Okay. And, and that is, I was going to ask you about that. So you're so good at this that you preemptively guess what questions I'm going to ask you. So the Blame It on the Summer Nights, what are we yes. listening to in that concert? Well, it is phenomenal. It is musical theater songs from the past hundred years. So we go back to classics and then there's a lot of contemporary songs from newer musicals mixed in. Um, it's directed by our guest artist, Scott Kuntz. He worked on um, Ragtime. He was here that summer. He and I directed that together, as well as last year's online theater, So Near So Far, which was the music of Brett Christofferson. And so Scott is directing the benefit concert. And the first recipient of the Dr. Marsha Berry Memorial Scholarship is our very own Simone Sparks. Of course. So we're very How excited perfect. about that. Yes. So she'll be singing in it. Our very own, uh, one of my colleagues in theater, Dr. David Crespi, he is in a couple of songs. Yours truly will be singing a couple of songs in the show. I've never yes. heard you sing, Joy. Oh, well, <laughs> this is your moment, Diana. <laughs> and then um, we're so excited to have our host and uh, another guest is Tori Stepanik, who is an alum of Mizzou Theater, as an alum of Mizzou. She was the meteorologist in town for a while. Now she works in development in um, the College of Arts and Science. Great performer. She's done a lot in Columbia and Jeff City. And so she'll be hosting the evening. And so we're just thrilled to be able to really come together and bring light to the work that Marcia did and, and what a deep impact she had on our department and our students. And um, I also think it's really cool that it's the same cast for both shows. So we've got that 
that heritage, that legacy of, you know, real repertory theater happening with a single cast doing more than one production. So this is a contiguous performance with Madagascar. So you not only have the actors in Madagascar doing multiple roles in that production, but they are then also needing to learn songs and lines and routines for a contiguous production. (laughs) It's all going yes. on at the same time. Wow, you were really you're really working them hard before they have a break. <laughs> well, again, that's part of that condensed process. Is that um, you know, and theater is like that. It's intense, intense, and then there's the release, right, of the opening and the performances, and then it gets in. You know, that's just kind of the rhythm of how it works. And so they're definitely understanding that rhythm in a new way this summer for sure, and definitely doing a great job. So, are you then telling me that Simone Sparks is also in Madagascar? No. So the guest artists, (laughs) the guest artists are only part of the concert. Are you going to be okay? (laughs) (laughs) I'll recover. I was wondering, I'm worried the answer is going to be a no to this too. But, you know, when you did The Wizard of Oz a couple of years ago, I fell in love with The Lion, who is played by Josh Runnels, who is fantastic. So I was wondering whether he might be back to play Alex the Lion in Madagascar. (laughs) He is not. I broke my heart again. But... The student that we have playing Alex the Lion, Yoni Estatke, is incredible. In fact, this entire cast of 10 students, I keep telling them that they're the hardest working people in show business because they're just, they love each other well. They're working so hard on the shows. They're lovely to work with, even in, uh, you know, over 100 degree heat. There's no complaining. I mean, they're just a really, really wonderfully bright and talented group and so i know that you won't be disappointed (laughs) i'm never disappointed with your productions joy they're they're always they're always amazing well madagascar a musical adventure opened actually two nights ago but can still be seen tonight and tomorrow plus thursday july the 1st at 7 p.m and there are still three matinees this saturday and sunday and saturday july the 3rd and those matinees are at 2 p.m and the blame it on the summer night a benefit concert is on for just two nights Wednesday, June the 30th and Friday, July the 2nd at 8 p.m. both days. And you can find out more about the shows and get tickets at theatre, spelt R-E, theatre.missouri.edu. Joy Powell, thank you, as always, for coming to chat with us. Oh, thank you. We could not celebrate 200 years of history in Colombia without considering the contributions made by the city's visual artists. As I well know from my many years at the Columbia Art League, the city has a venerable history of art through the ages. Not only thanks to the University of Missouri, Stevens and Columbia College's academic contributions, but also from organisations like the Columbia Art League, the Columbia Weavers and Spinners Guild, plus art dealers like Melissa Williams, Jennifer Perlow and Joel Sager in more recent years, and and, of course, our Office of Cultural Affairs. A new exhibit at the Boone History and Culture Centre's Mont Mini Gallery called Intertwined seeks to bring some of those strands together to reveal the artistic landscape of historic Colombia. And here to chat about the show is its curator, Audrey Flory. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Diana. So let's start with the title of the show. Tell me about the intertwining that you found as you researched what works to include in the exhibit. 
Yeah, so this was an interesting project to begin. Um, so I'm a PhD student uh, going into my second year in art history at MU. And so this really started with my advisor, Dr. Kristen Schwein, and she got me involved uh, via Joe Steely, who was on the Bicentennial Mayor's Task Force. And so I sat down with Joe Steely, Melissa Williams, and Chris Campbell after I initially got involved. And during that first meeting, they were rattling off names of local Columbia artists. And the list was so long that I could barely (laughs) keep up writing. Uh, I was scribbling furiously on my sheet of paper. And I really had over 100 names to begin with. So it was a very difficult task. Uh, But once we had that conversation, I started to look at some of the artists that they had mentioned. And I noticed just all of the connections between not only the visual artists at the universities, um, because a lot of them worked as educators as well, but how those artists were then connected with local historians and with local collectors. I went to artist David Gold's house, and his walls are just covered with various artworks from Fred Shane and Russell Green and Erica Rutherford to Joe Steely, and the same with Robin and Alex LaBrunerie's home. Um, Their walls are covered floor to ceiling with all of these local artists, and really, we could have had the exhibition at any one of their (laughs) homes. Um, So that's kind of how it began for me, was just seeing these names on a sheet of paper and the conversations with people and hearing their stories and how those stories then wove throughout those visual artists and really the visual arts community here in Colombia. Well, I believe you have 21 artists in the show. I was trying to count up in my head, thinking about walking through the show and seeing what's on the walls. Um, So tell me how you narrowed it down from over 100 to these 21 artists. Right. Yes. So like I said, this was, (laughs) this was no easy task. And I think, um, you know, having that initial meeting with everybody, we really wanted to highlight artists who aren't super well known. So, you know, we have George Caleb Bingham, and we have Thomas Hartbitten. And those could have been included in the show, we had access to some of those works. But those are the artists that Columbia already really knows about and the state of Missouri really already knows about. So, Part of my goal as an art historian is to shed light on the artists who are working a little more locally and regionally and don't have, they do have this national and international reputation, but not on this large scale. So that was kind of the main inspiration was thinking about those threads and how to really demonstrate how the Columbia arts community supports one another. So it was considering, you know, how I could demonstrate this collaborative nature and community exchange while also including artists that have been very valuable to the local arts community. And that's not to say that one artist is is more valuable than another. It also had to do with availability of work as well. Right. That's one thing that I wondered. There are some incredible art collections, not only in private homes around Columbia, but also in businesses like Central Bank of Boone County, which has 850 works in its collection, many of them local and several that are by artists in the show. But knowing where all these works are is a needle in a haystack. I mean, how do you even begin tracking the works down? I mean, you had luckily Alex and Robin LeBrunery in their collection and David Gold, but I mean, there's where do you start? <laughs> 
Yeah. So um, I'm not from Columbia. I'm from Indiana originally, and I've been here for three years. But as a graduate student, we tend to stay in our little bubbles. Um, (laughs) We're on campus. We have our nose, you know, in the books. So we don't get to know the community as much as what we would like to. So that was something that I was very stressed about, needless to say, (laughs) when this project first started. But I have to give a lot of credit to Melissa Williams of Melissa Williams. Fine Art Gallery. She is a historian and she's a local gallery dealer and collector. And she put me in touch with quite a few artists and not only artists, but those collectors. So she put me in touch with David Gold, with Brooke Cameron, with Alex and Robin LaBrunery and Byron Smith. And then it just kind of spiraled from there. So it was just And again, that kind of feeds into what this project was all about, right, was just thinking about all of these connections. And I was very concerned about how many works we would be able to get for this exhibition. And at first, my stress was, oh, my goodness, we're not going to have enough work. And then towards (laughs) the end, it was, oh, my goodness, we have too much work. (laughs) Well, the show includes works by two African-American artists. You have Frank Logan and Byron Smith. You have ample female artists, Tracy Montminy, Joe Staley, Joanne Banesh, Gladys Wheat. You have a transgender artist, and Erica Rutherford, a contemporary Latino artist who teaches today at the University of Missouri. But with the art world historically dominated by white male artists, and Columbia being no exception, talk to me about that diversity and about your search for works or your desire to have diverse artists in the show. Diversity was something that was on my mind when I was curating this, and that largely stems from my own personal research interests. I predominantly focus on women artists within the 20th century, American women artists. So I kind of have a a special place for bringing awareness to artists who are typically the minority group within the artistic canon. And, you know, like you said, Columbia is no exception. And that was was difficult at first because I was looking at the list and going, okay, well, gosh, this is still predominated by white male artists. But I think you have to give special attention to the artists who, you know, are not a part of that majority. And I think it can be easy to maybe disregard that, especially, you know, this was kind of a quick turnaround. I started this exhibition back in October, and then it opened in June. And so because of resources or research, it can be really easy to say, well, let me stick with the artists that are a little more well known, because I have more information on them. But I think it deserves special attention to those artists who are a part of those minority groups. And I wanted to include artists that represented all of Columbia. So that being said, the first work that really was a part of this exhibition was the work by Frank Logan, a Missouri farm scene. And then that kind of spiraled into Henry Kirkland. And while Henry Kirkland wasn't a visual artist. He was a horticulturist and a gardener, and he was born enslaved, and then he was freed when he was five years old. Um, So I really just wanted people to feel comfortable walking into the space and feeling like they could connect to a piece of artwork. I love that next to Frank Logan's Missouri Farm scene, you have a photograph of Henry Kirkland in a field with his little white dog and a, a house in the background and a cart nearby. And that photograph 
seems to have been the inspiration for that particular painting by Frank Logan. And I think that's really interesting that you track down the original image that Frank Logan, and this is in the 30s, uh, created this painting. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And so originally we thought... We thought the date was 1945 because that was a label that was on the verso of the painting. But since we believed that it was a homage to Henry Kirkland and his farm, whether that was an actual realistic portrayal of Kirkland's farm, we are unsure, but it definitely is a tribute to him. Um, But after I got into my research and I was reading more about Frank Logan and his studies because he um, got his bachelor's at Lincoln University in the 30s. And so he exhibited his painting, Missouri Farm Scene, in an exhibition at Atlanta University in 1945. But the article I was reading was saying that the painting that he won an award for during that exhibition was created during a painting course at Lincoln University. And so we do believe that it was painted when Kirkland uh, was still living in the 1930s. And it's just so amazing to kind of see those those photographs next to that painting, because like you mentioned, there's a little white dog in the in the foreground uh, next to Kirkland. Um, so it was such a pleasure researching that. And again, you know, Frank Logan has an extensive body of work by local collectors, but this was the only one that we could really get our hands on. And it'd be so interesting to know more about him. And it's exhibitions like this that kind of make people think about it a little bit more. And it was so interesting to hear people talk about that work uh, at the opening reception. Well, it is nigh impossible to cover 200 years of art history in a single show. And I love the choices you made. But the one criticism I do have is that the show is very slanted towards academic artists. And there's not reference to work done by the Columbia Art League and its early pioneers like Betty Robbins and Mamie Stevenson, Andy Tao or Heather Foote or the Columbia Weavers and Spinners, which was founded in the late 1940s and the community artists who provided so much tuition and opportunity to thousands of local people. I wonder if you had any discussions around that side of Columbia's art history. Yeah, so things like that did come up, especially the Columbia Art League. And our original vision uh, for this exhibition, and I say our at this point, because there was a component that I hoped would be included outside of the physical exhibition that could be more of a digital archive. And that's still not completely gone by the wayside. It is something we are working on, but that does take certain funding um, and budgets. But the goal hopefully was to include more of these organizations, um, arts organizations that have really sponsored the Columbia Arts community throughout the years because Columbia Arts League has been such a vital organization to to keeping um, the arts community thriving within Columbia. Right. And again, you know, you, you have so many works that are out in the community and it's a question of tracking them down. And I did a retrospective of 50 years of, of Art League artists back in 2009. And, and luckily, you know, we, we managed to find a lot of works that were in really a handful of people's houses who had been collectors for 50 years of Columbia art history. And it is fascinating to see 
that all put together and how then those academic artists feed into their teaching in the community and they've got their followers and and then their teaching and they have their followers. It is a lovely network of city and university and how they intertwine. Right. And I think, too, that's something um, that's so interesting about how these exhibitions are curated, too, because it, it is all about those conversations and the meetings. And I think it's interesting to consider how it did end up leaning a little more towards academic artists. And had there been more people in the discussion initially, I'm sure that list would have expanded from 100 <laughs> right. to 200. <laughs> Well, given that you are not from here, you have done a fantastic job. So thank you for such a great show. Thank you. Intertwined is at the Mont Mini Gallery, the Boone History and Culture Centre through September the 4th. Gallery hours are Wednesday to Saturday, 10 till 5, and there is no admission charge. I also want to give a quick mention to the Open Air Open House informal showcase concert that uh, is at the centre this Saturday, June the 26th from 4 till 7pm. And you can find out more about the concert and the Intertwined exhibit at boonhistory.org. Curator Audrey Flory, thank you so much for giving us more details about the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure, Diana. If you've driven along North College Avenue over the past few weeks, you may have noticed a giant mural being painted and completed on the Silver Key Plaza building. The subject of the mural is Columbia's iconic ragtime pianist, Blind Boone, and the artist whose depiction of the city's revered sun now covers two sides of a two-story building is another artistically heralded son of the city, David Spear. Good morning, David. Good morning. I have to start by saying... Wow, this painting is such an incredible gift to the citizens of our city, a stunning visual representation of history. And along with Blind Boone's home on 4th Street and his original Chickering Piano at the Boone History and Culture Centre, it is a dialogue opening work of art that brings history and a man back to life. So thank you so much, David. It is absolutely incredible. Really amazing. Is it your first huge mural? It's the first one of that size, yes. And and thank you very much. I, I appreciate the, the compliment. So was there a point when you thought, damn, what was I thinking? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably the first day. <laughs> <laughs> so you start off with this big, blank, white wall, and then you've got to make that first mark somewhere. Was that a little nerve-wracking? I guess my my biggest fear was I had gridded out the entire wall, started on the far back right corner and worked for a day and a half and realized that it looked like trash. (laughs) 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 And uh, embarrassingly, I had to paint over it white again and kind of just start over and uh, not use the grid, at least on on that part of the mural and, and just see what looked better. So I kept walking out to the street and then walking close to the, the painting. That is kind of part of, of my fascination with it is, is how you got that perspective. Now, I know you are king of unusual perspectives, but I mean, you have the front side of the building or the front of the building and the side of the building, and you wrap it so perfectly around those two sides how do you do that? I mean, you think about what you say when you're looking at a painting on a canvas, you know, you step back and look at it. But I mean, you're walking 50 feet back and forward, 50 feet back and forward every time you're standing back. Talk to me about that. 
Yeah, that was a little bit tricky. Um, yeah, so it's just a use of anamorphic perspective, really, like those, you know, the chalk drawings that you, you see on the street on Facebook and stuff where it looks like somebody's falling into a shark's mouth or on the edge of a cliff. So I'm just kind of working with that anamorphic perspective. I mean, if you if we want to take the deep dive and go into the weeds, we could talk about Hans Holbein's skull and the ambassadors. I mean, the, the first <laughs> real use of strange anamorphic perspective. Um, but yeah, I, I had it kind of planned that I, I did it on Photoshop and then I extended it and I thought it would work a certain way and it did to a degree, but it just doesn't, it didn't quite translate. So there was a lot of, uh, being on the edge of the street, looking at the, at the angle that I wanted people to kind of recognize it at, at that 45 degree from the, from the edge of the building. So, and I had some people that helped me. So when it came to time to do the keys, I would actually yell at them, no, raise your hand just a little bit higher, you know, and, and point. And then I'd go up and make a dot and then tell them to point again. Cause it was really hard around the electrical boxes to, to figure out what was going on. Right. So you said you, you when you first started, you started on the back right-hand corner. Did did you did you continue to start there? I'm thinking that you start on the corner and then kind of work out from that that front corner, but you start at the end and work back towards the corner. Yeah, it would have been nice if you were there that first day to tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> so is that actually how it worked in the end by starting on the corner it, of the building? It, it did. It did. I thought I thought hey, I could start with the grid from the back and just connect it to the front, but y- y- you're right. No, I went to the corner and started okay. <laughs> with the corner. Yeah. Well done. Thank you very much. I'm going to so- hire you next time. <laughs> I'm very cheap. So tell me the backstory of how the work came into being. Oh, well, uh, I guess it was six years ago. I did a, a poster for the Office of Cultural Affairs with this piece that was of Blind Boone playing the piano. That piece I actually made for um, a friend of mine. It's actually hanging in Reese and Robinson orthodontics right now. And it was just from the inspiration of, of the life of Blind Boone, who I see as just a man that overcame a lot of obstacles with a lot of faith and and um, became like this madman on the on the piano. And I just find his story to be really inspiring. So I did that that painting for them and then it became a poster and then six years later when trevor robinson asked me to do a painting on his building i just kind of automatically saw it there which doesn't happen very often you don't see a space and go oh i know exactly what goes there but it happens occasionally and this is this was one of those occasions where it just felt like it needed to be there how many hours do you have in this project would you say and and how long did it take you from start to finish well i had set aside a week but i hired a house painter kevin mccartney that i've worked with a couple times on on bigger projects and he was really my technical supervisor he's like okay dave this is a south facing wall on asphalt you'll have 3 hours to work on it a day before the paint will get too hot and if it gets too hot then it'll you know, Kevin really wanted this thing to last a long time. So he, he made sure that I was 
using the right paint and doing it the right way. Um, so I started in May and then it just kept raining and then kept raining. And I wanted to be done by Memorial weekend, but we were able to push that last week and we finished it the Tuesday after Memorial weekend. I'd, I'd say probably, uh, I don't know. I haven't really thought of the hours, maybe at 250. I don't know. So, I mean, how do you go about pricing a project like this? I'm not asking for actual numbers, but just the process of coming up with a price when you don't know how many hours it's going to be going into it. Right. Yeah. Well, you just, you, 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 <laughs> you just hope that you break even. And uh, if you could come out ahead, that's great. Um, this was a good one. I, we, we did okay on this. I don't know how you do the pricing. I guess it's just how much time you get to put into it. And you know, uh, the size, it's always about size and complexity. So really this, this piece wasn't as complex as it could have been. It was as simple as I could get on a design, but I think it got the point across. The one thing that that I did worry about when I started the piece was Kevin was saying that, you know, this is going to get a lot of press. Mm -hmm. And I started to panic because I'm a white guy painting an iconic African-American figure. And I didn't want that to be read the wrong way. I, I see him as a man that we could all be inspired by. So that kind of made me panic a little bit. And I, I called a, a friend of mine, Kenny Green, who has a lot of um, a great reputation as, as an artist and a, and a person in, in the Columbia art scene. And I talked to him about the project. And, uh, I, you know, I said, I want to make sure that the intention is being going the right way. And uh, he said, I understand exactly what you're saying. Uh, the best thing that you could do is contact the people at the Blind Boone House, tell them what you're doing, and so that we can cross-pollinate their mission plus the the intention of the, the painting itself. And and so that's – I got in touch with the, the people at Blind Boone and uh, talked to them a little bit. And then when Emily came – uh, because she saw it on Facebook and wanted to From do KOMU. Uh, yes, Emily Spain wanted to do a segment on it. I said, "Okay, could you reach out to people at Blind Boone?" And luckily, you know, Pastor Ruffin was more than helpful in in getting the story across and in getting the history out there. And that's, I think, what the piece is all about: is letting this the inspiration of this man and this time and this history continue. And I know that Kevin wants the building to last forever, but it's, it's, it's just not, you know, these are all sand castles, but hopefully somebody will see this now. And later on, they'll be able to pick up his legacy and continue it so that we understand not only who Blind Boone was, but the area that Blind Boone lived in uh, and the history of Columbia. I mean, talking about the longevity of the work, do you put a final protective surface on it or do you promise to go back for X number of years and touch up any bits that get damaged? Well, I hadn't really, I, di I didn't actually 
it's kind of a, this is an interesting question because I hadn't actually budgeted that because I didn't really think about it too much until we were getting close to being done. And, uh, Kevin said something about it. I'm like, I don't know. I think people will be fine with it. And uh, the owner didn't seem too concerned about it. And one of the lawyers came out and was like, you know, put a protective coat on that. And I'm like, oh, I don't, I, well, maybe he's like, I don't know. I'd hate to see somebody do something silly with it. And then somebody goes, yeah, what if somebody puts KKK on it? And it was only then that I realized that might be an issue is that he is because of his skin tone. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I had some guy roll up and say, Hey, I like it, but a lot of people aren't. And I said, Oh, and he goes, a lot of rednecks. And I was like, Oh, wow. Oh, that's, that's so sad that we have to think about that in well, 2021. And then this was, this was, uh, a week after the memorial for Scott at the Wolf Bridge was cut down. So, yeah. Sure. Protective coat, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> right. Does that even exist? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. It exists. Yeah. Yeah. So are you inundated with requests now to paint other buildings? No. No. Um, I've been asked, but uh, not inundated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, David Spears' mural of John William Blind Boone is on display, rain or shine, every day of the year at 1000 North College Avenue. David, your artistry has always been outstanding, and I always love seeing your work around town. So thank you for your art, and thank you for the chat. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Fourth of July weekend has been designated as the time when the City of Columbia celebrates its bicentennial. In actuality, the city's 200th birthday was back in April, but with few people fully vaccinated at that point and COVID still prevalent, it was decided to push the celebrations back to coincide with the 4th of July weekend. And as part of that weekend of multiple events, the Odyssey Chamber Music Series will be holding its pair of Como Bicentennial concerts. The first at First Christian Church in Jefferson City on Thursday, July the 1st, and the second at First Baptist Church in Columbia on Friday, July the 2nd. And I am so thrilled to welcome back to the show two people who are not only on the program, but who are also key figures in the move to make classical music more diverse. Odyssey's executive director, Ayaka Suruta, and the world's leading composer of African art music, Fred Onoveriswaki. Ayako and Fredo, what a huge delight to have you back on the show. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> so, Ayako, let's start with you. You are featuring works by four composers in this bicentennial concert. Fredo's, Florence Price's, Johannes Brahms, and George Gershwin. Tell me why you chose these four composers. Well, thank you so much for having me here. And it's such an honor, Fredo. The pieces were actually chosen according to the performers. And I did have the diversity in mind in a sense that I myself am Japanese and I grew up here most of my life. And I wanted to actually celebrate the different kind of people that make up our classical music. And Fred's music was actually a recommendation from one of our board members, Amanda Collins. And she is a French horn professor at the University of Missouri. 
And she said that, well, you know, he has actually two pianos that you might be interested in. And of course, as you probably know, I do a lot of the two pianos with my pianist husband, Peter Miyamoto. And I was really, I'm always interested in looking for new repertoire for the two pianos. And I was really interested in this work. And the piece that I found was the Sonata Number、no. Three for two pianos by Fredo. And I'm really excited to feature this as part of the program. Florence Price is a composer who I recently came across, and wow, she's such a dynamite! And this is one composer that everybody should know. She's probably I would equate her as the female Brahms.、Uh, her tone is really rich and quite virtuosic, actually. And I'm really Glad to invite back my dear friend Carlene Wan, who is now teaching at a university in West Virginia. And Carlene is a soprano, right? Yes, she is. Yes, she used to teach at Lincoln University, and this is the reason why we're bringing this program also to Jefferson City, so that she has a chance to feature these、uh, beautiful songs, also in the neighborhood that she used to teach. And、um, Johannes Brahms was actually the last selection in the program. I did have the George Gershwin in mind first because, well, it's、uh, Rhapsody in Blue, and who doesn't like Rhapsody in Blue? <laughs> Such an iconic piece. And、uh, we had、uh, one of our former students do an arrangement for Thirteen Instruments. It's really well done, and I'm just really glad that we were able to have a little bit of a reunion of the University of Missouri's former students and musicians in town. To gather with us, and Peter Miyamoto as the soloist, with Kirk Trevor conducting the thirteen musicians. The Johannes Brahms, the work itself was recommended by my dear friend、uh, Sam Chen, who is a guest trombone player right now at Missouri Symphony. And I asked him, you know, since you're in town, what would you like to do something? And he came up with these Brahms songs that I actually did not know. So, a lot of new works here, and a lot of diverse works that I'm really excited to feature here in Columbia and Jefferson City. Well, Fredo, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say you are not only one of, but probably the leading composer of African classical art music. But for those people who have not heard African classical art music, can you put into a nutshell for us what are some of the key differences between Western classical and African classical art music?、Uh, let me preface that in that classical music is a language. You know, that's the way I see it. That's the way I think it should be seen, and、uh, as a language, everybody can approach it with his or her different accent, you know, and cultural perspective, you know. So, in terms of Africa, a lot of our musical ideas are defined by strong and eclectic rhythms and different modal ways of expression. So, yes. African art music is、uh, the kind of classical music, the genre of classical music that, you know, tap into all of those things. You know, eclectic rhythms, eclectic modals, eclectic harmonies. That's what African art music is. 
One of the things that I learned recently that was surprising to me, particularly as my background is linguistics, is that so many of the African languages are tonal. And so when you listen to African art music, so much of it relates to the language, the tonal language of the various areas of Africa. Can you talk a little bit about that, Fredo? Yeah, tonality is key in most African languages. Uh, now, that affects our instrument, like in Gambia, in Senegal. Every instrument maker tends to tune their instrument according to their language, the tonality in their languages. So you may see chora player from Senegal, and you see another chora player from, say, northern Mali, Playing Kora, you know, which is the regular 21 string. I bet you the 21 strings from the different countries will be tuned completely differently. Or you may see a Seprawa player. Seprawa is like a seven-string lute kind of harp instrument. In Ghana, it's tuned almost at least three different ways. Now, you can go to northwestern Ivory Coast, and see the same instrument, seven strings. But again, it will be tuned differently, you know, governed by the languages of the musician. So that's just in instrumental music. Now, in the choral, vocal, it's just more marked, it's more defined, you know, because a composer has to be very, very careful about the intonation, the ups and downs, rise and falls of their intervals. If not, they will mess up, you know, <laughs> the word. So this is just uh, the most succinct way to explain the tonality, how tonality tends to govern African musical practices. Right. Well, Fredo, I know your work has some fiendishness to it in terms of its complexity, especially when it comes to the rhythms for people who have been more educated in Western rhythmic, harmonic, classical music. So, Ayako, you're going to be playing <laughs> uh, Fredo's work at the concert. What would you like to ask him about the piece? Where are your challenges? Well, one of the things that I think when you have been playing an instrument for a while. So the reason why we learn scales is because they are used so oftentimes in the classical repertoire. So when it comes to contemporary music, they actually break down that barrier and they'll do all sorts of things that actually do not fit into the hands that are, let's say, more comfortable for the major and minor scales because we're now talking modes and exactly. you know, all sorts. Right. And there will be sometimes the harmony that are just not even ninth or thirteenth. It's like you can't label them. <laughs> you have to kind of my, figure my, out. My, microtonal, microtonal. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so fortunately, both Peter and I have played enough contemporary music. So we understand this kind of language uh, quite well. And like I said, I actually think this is really, really well written. Now, that being said, for example, there would be some repeated notes where I'll be using a lot of fives, whereas in the traditional classical music you'll be you know uh, switching the fingers four three two one or something nobody would do five 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 but i have no other choice <laughs> you know? so, so there are some you know acrobatic things that are happening here oh i do have one question sure. so 
I love the titles of the sonata number three. The first movement is called Warrior's Dance, and the second one is Incantation, and mm-hmm. it's really hypnotic. Yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. And then the third one um, is Raging River Dance. So That's right. <laughs> the Raging River Dance, it's really something. So as far as the technical difficulties are concerned, we can play this at a slower tempo. The, we're still working towards the number you gave us. <laughs> And then, you know, it's so easy to get that rage <laughs> But I'm also encouraged because actually there is a recording that a young woman had recorded. And it's actually posted on YouTube. Now, she's done this Raging River Dance as a piano solo. So, yeah, Rebecca Amodia. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. She is just phenomenal. She really yes. is. So I figured, you know, if she can do it, we should be able to do this. <laughs> so psychologically, that's where we are right now. <laughs> we have 10 days to get this together. <laughs> You're doing a fantastic thing. It takes time and it takes practice. I can guarantee you, you talk to Rebecca or you talk to Michelle Kahn in Philadelphia. She's a phenomenal pianist. Who premiered it with St. Louis Symphony, Peter Henderson, here in St. Louis? They played it almost top tempo, you know? And they would tell you the same thing. It took practice. It took getting their brain out of the box. But one thing they kept repeating, it took a lot of practice. So that is what you're doing. <laughs> you're doing the right thing. You've only had a few weeks with this score. And uh, by next year, you're just going to roll it out. And you're just going to say, hey, I feel good. <laughs> 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 Well, following on from that, Fredo, I'm going to speak to one of your passions here, which is that classical music needs to be a lot more contemporary. We've talked about how musicians in the day of Mozart and Beethoven and Schubert were not playing music from 200 years previously. They were playing what was contemporary to them. Bless your heart, bless your heart. (laughs) So why, when there are so very many talented contemporary composers out there, are we still playing the music of old white men? And I know you just spoke about this at the League of American Orchestras <laughs> conference. So I'm curious, what was their reaction to your request for them to modernize the canon they play? You know, I got to be really grateful for the amount of uh, emails and actually calls from some major symphonies, you know, who people who heard my contribution on that panel with uh, just four amazing human beings of this movement. So we've been getting all this wonderful response, and it's been all good, you know. Uh, A lot of people, a lot of uh, the uh, managers understand one thing we explained, that 
It's all in the budget. They need to make room for the budget to really understand the music because, to your question, Diana, it's all, it's all born out of fear of the unknown. That is why classical musicians, orchestra programmers want to keep doing the same old thing, same old thing. In the meantime, we shortchange the industry of classical music because what an opportunity. New immigrants, we have Asians coming in. We have Caribbeans, we have Latin American coming in. See, Antoine de Vozak, for example, came to America, befriended Harry T. Bolly, the African-American composer and singer. And Antoine de Vozak said, look, when he heard the spirituals, he said, my goodness, America has the potential to expand classical music. And when Maurice Ravel visited America, he went back, created the, the G major piano concerto, and there's a lot of jazz in that piece. Yeah, so you, you have all these people that saw the potential of America's diversity, but 200 years later, our orchestras haven't moved the needle. So what wasted opportunity. Why don't our classical music industry in America see the opportunity that our diversity has to create a wonderful, enrich a wonderful industry? People, don't get me started. <laughs> Too late. Too late, you've already started. Well, let, let me go back to Ayako just to, to round it up. As tickets are free for these two concerts, and presumably we're still following safe social distancing rules, how do people reserve tickets, or is it first come, first serve on the night? We're actually going ticket free. So just come as you are. If you would like to mask up, that's great. Um, the First Baptist Church is, you know, 650 seat capacity. So we have enough room. Well, Fredo, will you be coming to Columbia on July the 2nd for the concert of your music? There she goes. She's trying to... Just a little extra pressure on Ayako and Peter. Throw a curveball. You know what? <laughs> we, 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 you know you can stay we, here. <laughs> okay. So I think we, we we will make it to to the Columbia concert, so we can uh, we'll see, so that we can see Diana and Tom at the same time. You know? I shall prep the guest wing for you. <laughs> well, the Odyssey Chamber Music Series pair of concerts celebrating Como Bicentennial will take place on Thursday, July the 1st in Jefferson City at the First Christian Church and here in Columbia on Friday, July the 2nd at First Baptist Church. Both concerts start at 7pm and admission is free, although donations are always very much appreciated. To find out more about the concerts, go to odysseymissouri.org and Ayaka's Ruta and Fredo, thank you so much for taking time to chat today. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest today, director Joy Powell, curator Audrey Flory, artist David Spear, pianist Ayuku Suruta, and composer Fred Onovera-Swarki. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, 
opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and also on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia! Columbia!